Are you looking for hope? Then you're in the right place. If you're not, well, you're still in the right place because we all need hope. Welcome to the Shine and Delight podcast. We hope to navigate life's storms together as we encourage and build up one another to find true saving hope in the only one that can truly satisfy. We can't fix your problems, but we'll definitely point you towards someone who will. Come along. Well, hello there, ladies and gentlemen. We are back for another episode of Shine in Delight. I'm here with my lovely friend. Am I the lovely friend? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm honored. That's so nice. Thanks. That's Ro. That's Ro for you who don't know. And then we have a special guest on who's an amazing man, um, Matt Tingblad. I love saying your name. Thanks, Andrew. It's good to be here. Um, so, Matt, what should the audience know about you today? What's some, some fun things about you? Well, um, I am on staff with Josh McDowell Ministry. We're, we are an apologetic ministry that has uh, been with crew for many, many years. And I just came on as a new speaker and author for the team. Congrats. So, thank you. Yeah. So uh, a lot of my work has been in the world of apologetics, helping people understand why we can believe that Christianity is true. I've been working on uh, a lot of projects related to the goodness of God, other projects that are ongoing, stuff related to, of course, the existence of Jesus and the evidence of the resurrection, and all those uh, common questions that you get in apologetics. I've been diving myself into that and looking for opportunities to, uh, to share what I've been learning. Very cool. You sound very intelligent. I feel like we need Google Girl here today as well. We can rank their intelligence levels. Mallory, just getting there. Yeah. Uh, but Ro, what kind of icebreaker you got for us today? Yeah, um, so a little little background scenario. Imagine the weather's terrible and you were stuck in your house for a day. What movies are you watching in that situation? Mm, takes me back to Snowpocalypse, except I didn't have power on, so I couldn't watch movies. Same. The whole day? Like, I have to be able a whole day? Man, well, no, I mean, just generally it, it, speaking. You know, it's outside, it's horrible, I can't work, I can't do anything else. I'm pulling out Lord of the Rings, going to watch that whole trilogy. Um, probably work out a little bit, stretch a little bit, cuddle with my wife a little bit. It's going to be a good day. It's a solid choice. Yeah. One of my favorite mo- uh, scenes in cinematic history is in Lord of the Rings. Oh, which scene? Yeah, the moment where, um, what's her name, Eowyn is like fighting the... The, uh, oh, what, the, the ring race? Yeah, the, the ring race. Yeah. In the first movie? No, in the third one. Oh, the third one. Okay, um, got you. And there's that moment where he's all like fighting her and he's like, no man can kill me. And she pulls off her helmet. She's like, I am no man. And she thrusts her sword ah, in his face. Ah, yes. It's glorious. Uh, one of my favorite things. I think to answer the uh, to answer this question as well, when I think of rainy days and just being stuck at home watching movies, I'm a sucker for nostalgia. Okay. And so I think back to a lot of those movies I watched growing up as a kid. Uh, lots of the animated Disney films, you know, like even as far back as um, uh, of like S- Snow White and movies like that. Um, I just I just enjoy watching those things again and. And kind of reliving those memories as a kid. I'm a big fan of Bambi for some reason. Even though oh, his yeah. mom dies, but uh, it's a really good movie. <laughs> Sorry, I ruined a few people. Ro, what about yourself? I love the Transformers trilogies, the first three. I mean, not as intelligent of an answer as the two of you. They're epic. Like, seeing those in theaters, there's so, there's so much explosions. It's just like, boom, 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 the so whole I, movie. I had a teammate in college who works in Hollywood now. His He grew up in Hollywood. He now works there. His father is a producer in Hollywood, and he's a movie snob because he knows what a good movie is because he's in that industry. And when I told him that I like the Transformers movies, he laughed at me because apparently, like, those are a joke. And I'm like, you can think they're a joke. I like them. Stuff blows up. They're entertaining. Shia LaBeouf's a good actor. And they still made money. And they so. still made a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. If it generates money or not is a, is a big factor on whether a movie is good, at least from some standards. Oh, they make five? How many have they made? I, the first three are the only ones that count. Okay, well, I'm just saying they kept going with it, so obviously it made money. Yeah, it made, mo- it made a lot of money. 
Yeah. Well, Ro, tell the audience what we're going to be talking about today. We find ourselves in a lot of conversations with people who claim to be Christians but struggle with that, uh, struggle with the existence of God. Or we find ourselves in conversations with out-and-out atheists who just flatly do not believe in the existence of God. They believe God's a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. They believe Jesus is a legend. And I think we find ourselves in these conversations a lot, whether we do ministry full-time, which, Andrew, you and I don't. Matt, you do. But, you know, whether you're in full-time vocational ministry or you're just talking to friends, the existence of God is a topic that comes up a lot. And I think that basically since the Enlightenment, this is a topic, this is a debate that's been going on for centuries. And, you know, since it's been going on for so long, we have every reason to believe it's going to continue to go on. And this is a conversation that's not going to end by Saturday. Mm -hmm. And so what we want to do is we want to equip our audience mm. to better have these conversations. And, you know, this is a, like I said, this is a centuries-old debate. We're not going to solve these issues in a 45-minute podcast or a 30-minute podcast. Um, but maybe we can give some bullet points or maybe we can give some answers to those tough questions that can better help people navigate that conversation. Totally, Yeah. Yeah, and you might even be having some tough questions yourself. Yeah. And you were like, man, is this historic? Is there historical evidence for the Christian faith? Like, is there biological evidence? And you're trying to root your faith in something tangible more so. Yeah. And go ahead, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is kind of the two part question for Christianity. First is, does God exist? And after that, which God? <laughs> uh, so we're, we're talking about the existence of God and then moving ahead to discuss Jesus. You could likewise just start with Jesus. And mm -hmm. if that, evidence checks out, then it would imply, of course, the existence of God. Um, and some people will take that route, but I think it might be easier to enter into a conversation with Jesus if we have pre-established a belief system that allows God to exist in this world. Absolutely. And the, the question that I want to talk about first really goes back to the Enlightenment period, and there's actually a backstory. So mm -hmm. on All Saints Day in 1756 in Lisbon, Portugal, which is one of the most religious cities in Europe, there was an earthquake. And what follows earthquakes? tsunamis. So on All Saints Day, everyone's in church, and there was an earthquake. And because churches during that time were the tallest buildings in town, they were the ones that collapsed first. And so when the earthquake hit, all of these people that were in church on All Saints Day died. Mm. And then the people that weren't in church got wiped out by the tsunami that followed. And a lot of people say that was the beginning of the modern atheist movement, because people looked at that and said, why would a loving God allow his followers to die on a holy day in a holy city while they're in church by a natural disaster? And like I said, that was the beginning of the modern atheist movement. And that's a tough question to answer because <clears throat> underlying, that, underlying that specific question is the question, if God is loving, if God is real, why does he allow terrible things to happen to people? So we're asking the question of why is there evil in the world more or less? Yes. And that, that is, I mean, and Matt, you would probably agree, that is the most... Would you say that's probably the most common question that skeptics will ask? I think so. Some version of that, uh, the, the fact that we live in a world that has suffering mm -hmm. and the fact that we suppose that if God really did exist, or at least that if he was good and all-powerful and all-knowing, that he would remove suffering every time. Mm -hmm. um, and it becomes even a more sticky situation when we speak about natural disasters, right? Because typically when we talk about suffering, the kind of go-to response by Christians is to discuss free will. Mm -hmm. um, the reason that people suffer is because God gave us the ability to make choices. And sometimes those choices will lead to people making decisions that hurt others suffering. Natural disasters is a little different because there's no apparent uh, there, there's no apparent way in which free will is even involved in this. Nobody asked for the earthquake or the tsunami or anything like that. Mm. Um, from a Christian perspective, I, I would say that 
all suffering we experience uh, does go back to free will one way or another. And it does get a little more difficult with natural disasters, but when you look at the biblical perspective, in, in Genesis 1, God made a world, he called it good. God made a perfect world. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we understand that Adam and Eve, uh, they, they sinned against God, and what does God say? He says, cursed is a ground because of you. Mm. I don't know entirely what that all entails. In context, it was the um, uh, a- Adam's uh, a struggle to produce fruit from the ground. Uh, but Paul even takes it further, and in, in, he sees it in a more general way in Romans 8 as he talks about how the earth was subjected to frustration because of the one who put it into subjection, mm-hmm. referring to Adam there, um, and how the, the world groans you know, for, the, for, the, for God to return and for his, his sons and children to, to redeem this um, in, in that whole process of uh, Christ's return. So my point in all this is that even there, like when we chose to rebel against God in sin— that did something with the world. I don't know exactly how that works or how our sin has that sort of influence in in the nature of the world, um, but there is some sort of connection there. Uh, We could also look at how there's a a demonic element as well that was entered in um, when sin entered the world. Uh, I I believe that we could make a case, you know, that there's spiritual warfare and so forth and that we humans are not the only people who are free agents here. Um, it could also be that there's a type of demonic influence going on. My point in all this is that uh, there are reasons for why these things happen. It's not like this uh, is uh, completely a, a an argument that destroys existence of God or even that he's good. Um, I can think that a good God would have good reasons for allowing pain and suffering to take place in our world. Mm-hmm. It's not always a very um, comforting answer. Um, but my point in saying this is not to comfort, that's a different type of question. Mm. Um, what I simply want to show is that there are reasons. Um, we could also look at how suffering often produces qualities in us that could not happen unless the suffering took place, right? So you have things that form in us like character and strength and endurance. And we, I think back to that famous passage in James, you may have heard it if you grew up going to church. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of many kinds. Mm-hmm. Why? Because the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And then what's really interesting is he, he goes on to say that perseverance must finish its work mm-hmm. uh, so that you may be complete, lacking nothing. Evidently, uh, perseverance is a type of quality that should grow in us, and we are not fully human or complete until that develops. That sort of stuff can't happen without some level of suffering in our world. It's a really good answer. Facts uh, inside of that. Yeah, so what he's saying there is basically physical evil is a consequence, right, a result of the fall. So we're talking mm-hmm. snake bites, your spider bites, um, plagues, natural disasters, all a consequence of the fall and man's choice in the garden um, to sin, right? I mean, what the other options, though, if you're an atheist, is that it's just normal, right? That mm-hmm. there's no reason for it at all, that it's just, this is a normal state of things inside of that. Um, and then if you took to the uh, pantheism where every, everything is a god, right? The, you look at that and saying, well, everything is a god, so it's just a result of karma, more or less. Yeah, I mean, especially in the Hindu system of thinking Which is, through things. Um, that, that is one of the big questions as well when we talk about suffering, because the reality is, kind of like what you pointed out, everyone suffers, whether you're a Christian, atheist, pantheist, Hindu, Buddhist, whatever. Yeah. I mean, we could keep going. Like, Buddhism, uh, pain is an illusion. It's, it's not real. Yeah. Darwinism, it's just natural selection working itself out. You know, the stronger win, the, the weaker die off. Like, there's all different sorts of explanations. New Age spirituality, they offer a God that's so generalized, typically, one who doesn't have any name or face or eyes of love. 
And so if you're going to, if you're in the midst of a trialing moment in your life and you're looking at this and about ready to run away from God, the question is, to what? Yeah. Like, where are you going to run to? You can't escape suffering. That's just an axiom of life that we all know and experience. But when you have all these different systems of thoughts, atheism, Buddhism, Hinduism, and so forth, giving their different answers, my goodness, I look at Christ, who yeah. himself, uh, he, he came to earth, he became small, he suffered with us, he felt the sting of this broken world, he got deep, deep, deep into the mess of the pain we know, but he wasn't lost in it. And now he stands ready to pull us off. He, he stands ready to pull us out. And he says, come unto me, all who are weak and every burden, and I will give you rest. Yeah, I, uh, I, my friend gave an answer to that question on Friday, and someone said, why do bad things happen to good people? And his answer was, that has only happened one time in all of human history, and that was crucifixion. That was Because yeah. the, there, there, the Bible says there's only one good person that has ever lived, yeah. and that was Jesus. Yeah. And so the whole premise of that question is flawed, because, yeah, bad things happen, but bad things don't happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people, because all of us are messed up. We're all broken. Uh -huh. Yeah, the one exception is Jesus Christ, and he volunteered. Yeah. Uh, and so, the, <laughs> and if he's our example as a Christian, yeah, right, then we're supposed to be imitating and following. What are we called to do, right? But I think we can take hope in that. I mean, I love in, in the Hebrews where it says, "In that he himself has suffered, right, being tempted." That's a different type of suffering in there. Mm -hmm. um, we get to; he's able to help us who are being tempted, right? So, in our suffering, whatever kind of suffering that is, he's able to help us through that. Yeah. Oh, I mean, that's that's a huge piece of this, too, because it's not like God just allows suffering. Mm -hmm. I don't think our answer stops there. I don't think it should. God entered into it, mm -hmm. um, and that's profound. I've been thinking a little bit lately about even how in uh, John, uh, I believe it's, uh, when, when is the re resurrection of Lazarus? John 10 or 11. Um, but there's a moment where Jesus comes, and what has often been considered the shortest verse in Scripture, depending on how you count, uh, Jesus wept. Yeah. I mean, he was just about ready to heal uh, or to raise Lazarus back from the dead, but he's surrounded by all these people mourning, and he weeps with them. He's that's, like, that's profound. There's a hope. Yeah, yeah. There's something and, else out there. And, 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 and so he weeps with them. He, he enters in, and he doesn't just rush to fix the problem. He enters into the pain. I even think of, like, Paul, who um, near the end of Second Timothy, if I remember right, he, he said that there was a guy in the church who was, um, you know, going against him, and it brought great suffering, but the Lord stood with me in this. I think Hymenaeus so, was So, there. yeah, and well done. <laughs> I think that's a guess. That's a guess. I don't know. Okay, well, we'll have to let our audience fact check that and see how it turns out. But Sorry, you were on a roll. Keep going. No, whatever the case, there's, there's just the... Um, the, this reality that Christ meets us in here, um, that he's there. And, and my goodness, one of the great needs of anybody who is suffering is that their suffering is taken seriously. And nowhere in all of literature is suffering taken more seriously than in the pages of Scripture. And within Scripture, nowhere is suffering taken more seriously than in the person of Jesus. We have to recognize that and, and the healing that he provides. I just find it astounding that so many people, when they experience suffering and they grew up in the church learning about the compassion and love of God, would rather run away from him in those moments when they need him most. Yeah. Um, and so we, we have to just be careful that we think well about this and not just run away from God because we experience pain. We could, and I would say for the, for the exact opposite reason, let's run to God. Yeah. Um, he's our comforter. He's our healer. And uh, in the case of Lazarus, Jesus did resurrect him from the dead. It's not guaranteed that we will experience Jesus's resurrection power here on earth in the same kind of way, but we will, whether it's here on earth or in, in the heavenly uh, future yet to come, God is going to restore this. And it's really difficult 
when sufferings happen, I think the reason that question is so potent is because, you know, it, you can say, you can say the truth, which is that God has a, a purpose and a reason for everything that he does, but that's not a really comforting answer if your mom is sick. No. You know, it's, it's really difficult to look past that and see what God is doing in that moment. I, I heard an example this past week where when the Babylonians came in and knocked down the temple, it was the Babylonians, right? That mm-hmm. took the, Okay. So when the Babylonians knocked down the temple for the first time, if you were a Jew in the 5th century BC, whenever that happened, you would not have understood why God allowed that to happen because this is the holiest place in Judaism. Mm-hmm. God, do you even know what you're doing? Why would you allow this to get knocked down? Yeah. Well, one of the consequences of that is since the temple was destroyed and the Israelites were exiled to Babylon and they were spread out all over the place, one of the consequences of that happening is that they started to build synagogues because they didn't have a temple anymore. And so they needed a place where them, their family, their friends, the, their neighbor from down the street could worship on the Sabbath. And so there was this network of synagogues all over you know, Israel and Jerusalem, pretty much all over the place. And so you fast forward a couple centuries when Jesus came along and when Paul started his ministry, he had a network of synagogues that he could go to and the gospel spread that much faster. Mm. And so, you know, you, you look at that and when we look at it in, in reverse, we can see what God was doing there. You know, he allowed the temple to get destroyed. So there could be synagogues that way the gospel could spread faster several hundred years in the future. Totally. But if you're in that moment when you're watching your holy place get knocked down, that's not, you don't see that. You have no way of understanding what's going to happen. And so there's no, there's no comforting answer in that situation. Well, you have Jesus saying that in John 4, the woman at the well, right? There's going to come a time when you're not worship on this mountain or that mountain, referring to Jerusalem, right? But you should worship in spirit and in truth. And right, and when they knock down the temple, God's like, man, I gave you a temple, one place to worship. And yet you guys couldn't hold that law. Now I'm going to give you my spirit. Uh, in that sense, where you can worship in spirit and truth wherever you're at um, in there. And I think just going back to the question of suffering a little bit, it's it's intellectual head knowledge, kind of what we're saying here, like here's the reason for suffering, here's what's going on, mm-hmm. um, but it's hard to wrestle with when you're in it, right? And so if your friend's in it or, you know, or you're in it personally, it's it's sitting down with your friends, it's being there for people, it's just as God is there for you. Mm-hmm. Think of him more as a best friend, our comforter, our advocate on in those time frames, instead of just this intellectual knowledge about this great God who created me and sent into the world. It's like, no, he's there with us in our suffering, and he literally gave us the Holy Spirit to aid us in that, to be there for our comfort. And if you're in that, man, we'll be praying for you. Let us know. Totally. Yeah, I had a friend who, um, and this is kind of fresh when I was listening to him when we last talked just a few weeks ago. He was sharing how he grew up uh, as, well, he grew up with a lot of pain and struggle in his life. He was abused. Um, He was also burned by the church quite a few times, which really disillusioned him to the goodness of God in many ways. And he, uh, he ended up continuing in his Christian life. In fact, in every respect, visually, he looked great. I mean, he went to seminary. He, uh, he was a leader at the church, did fantastic work there. And I'm certainly convinced that he loved the Lord and was uh, openly, you know, confessing that without reservation. But deep down, there was this sense of distance uh, that he had with the Lord because of this pain that was embedded so deep in there. Mm. And so as my friend was sharing this story, um, he said that when this finally surfaced and he realized that it's hard for him to connect with God, um, he started to search all these different answers and books and podcasts and, and different types of things to research and understand what is going on. How do I how do I just how do I reconcile the fact that I'm experiencing so much pain? That God is still good. How can I receive this? And um, he probably was knowing him. He probably researched quite thoroughly. Probably was li- listening to a lot of stuff that we're even talking about right now. Yeah. Um, but the moment when everything changed was not from any book or podcast or sermon or anything. It was actually 
when he sat down and spent uh, an extended period of time praying with the Lord. And uh, mm. it, was a, uh, it was a profound moment where he started to listen and he felt the Lord speak to him. And um, I want to share that, what, what he shared with me from the Lord's words, uh, at least the way that he perceived them. And not in, well, and in, in because I, I think that they're biblical, <laughs> what yeah. the Lord was saying. Um, and also, I do believe that God speaks to us. And, and this is what my friend said. He said when he was listening to the Lord, he, he heard the Lord speak, and he felt, he felt God say that those times when you were abused, um, I, I did not like that. I, I hated that just as much as you do. I was grieving in that. But because I love people, I was not going to subvert their free will. However, I was with you in that. I was with you in the pain, and I'm going to restore this world, and I'm with you in the healing process. Mm. And that's what changed it for him. It, it wasn't, it was funny because I was listening to this and I'm like, bro, like, didn't you already know this stuff? He's like, yeah, I knew all this stuff. I was reading it and so forth. But th- all the difference came when he heard those words directly from the Lord himself. And I do believe that God speaks to us in our pain. Hmm. Um, and so I, I would just encourage anybody who's going through those hard moments of life that um, you might be kind of throwing yourself on all these books and research, and that's fine. But take that to God. Present your pain to God um, because he's enough, and he's really the answer that we need. Amen. Our identity is not found in our suffering, right? Mm-hmm. Our identity is found in Christ. We mm-hmm. found God. And so when we, we take all those, whatever maybe suffering or things going on, we take that to him. We say, God, this is what I'm going through. This is how I feel right now. This, I, that is, it might be who I am, but it's not because it's not who you call me. And then you just sit there with him, right? It's tough to do. I mean, yeah. there's that promise in Psalm 23, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I know that you are with me. Totally. And, you know, and it's, it's crazy because David compares himself to a sheep in that psalm over and over. It's, it's a psalm about a shepherd, you yeah. know, caring for a flock of sheep. And the analogy is obviously God is the shepherd, we're the sheep. Um, and it's a great analogy because sheep are really dumb, stubborn animals, and they're completely dependent on the shepherd. So that's a perfect analogy for humans, <laughs> our dependence on God. And so the valley of the shadow of death that he's talking about is quite literally for a sheep, it, it is the valley of the shadow of death because predators lived in the valley. They lived in the rocks, yeah. uh, like pre- most notably big cats. They lived in the rocks. And so if the shepherd was not there, those sheep, they wouldn't last long. They'd get torn to shreds. Um, and it's it's just, it, it's a perfect reminder that when we're in the valley of the shadow of death, God not only can comforts us and he's with us, but he's also holding back evil. Um, and, you know, without God, things could be infinitely worse. I think that's a, a thing that we often neglect at times when we ask this question, that things could be so much worse without our dependence on God. I mean, the end of the Great Commission, end of Matthew, right? Jesus' last words, and behold, I am with you always, always, even to the end of the age, right? And those are his, his promises yeah. that God is never going to leave us nor forsake us, right? So that you can hold on to that and, and suffering. When there's evil, those things going on, he's, he's never left us because there's too much evil around us. So, Ro, what is the uh, second question you want to kind of dive into today? Yeah, uh, my second question really falls along more the lines of we see a lot of people who they really look at the Bible as a fairy tale, and they think, you know, modern science has disproved a lot of this stuff. We no longer need God to explain the origins of the universe because we have the Big Bang. Um, We no longer need God to explain the creation of humans because we have Darwin's theory of evolution. Um, Mm -hmm. We have the Hubble telescope. We can see the universe in great detail. We no longer need God to explain how all of that got here. You know, we have gravity. We have all these things. You get my point. And I think that kind of you can take con- passages out of the Bible, take them out of context, and make it sound ridiculous. Um, and so, so my question, Matt, is how do you address those questions, you know, from a naturalistic standpoint? How, how do you say, 
how do you say that this book is is inerrant and it's the word of God when modern science has disproved so many things in this book? That would be the I'm playing the devil's advocate, okay. but that would be the okay. claim. Uh, there's kind of a lot a lot in there yeah. that you were saying. Sixteen questions actually. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you, the uh, let me begin as as far as the inerrancy of the Bible goes. Mm-hmm. Um, I would not establish the doctrine of inerrancy by taking every claim the Bible has and fact-checking it all to death. Like, you can't, nobody can possibly do that. Mm-hmm. Inerrancy, for me, uh, I, f- I see it more from a top-down approach where we begin with evidence for Jesus Christ and that he lived, that he uh, ministered, that he died and resurrected from the dead. And then when we are at that point, we're ready to say, okay, like, I take Jesus seriously. At that point, you're ready to take his word seriously. Jesus talked very authoritatively and confidently uh, about the Old Testament. He established uh, disciples and apostles who would then carry forth his message, which was transferred in the New Testament. And so the, the whole of Scripture is, is, is understood and received because we receive Christ. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as these questions of science go, um, it, might, it may be where we discover that there's some sort of scientific evidence that goes against what the Bible has to say. And at that point, um, it would cause us to re-question what we believe about inerrancy. Mm-hmm. But I'm just, I'm just talking about kind of order of operations here. As, as far as the inerrancy of the Bible goes, that's kind of a different direction that I would take yeah. to go there. But it is certainly worthwhile talking about science because uh, historically, science has butt heads with Christianity in many different ways. But in many, 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 many more different ways, science has not had anything to do with uh, what the Bible has. And there's been just separate domains of knowledge, right? Like, I, I see no reason as a Christian why I would go against modern medicine mm-hmm. or why I would go against the atomic theory or why I would go against all different sorts of things that science talks about. It's really questions of origins uh, in that very specific area of science that seems to rub in conflict with what the Bible has to say. But even there, uh, a lot of this depends on how you understand science and how you understand the Bible. Um, Either of those could be a little off in our understanding, and in which case I can see that there are ways in which the Bible and science go well together. Mm -hmm. Um, For instance, people talk about the age of the earth and how uh, the Bible says that the earth is only, you know, a couple thousand years old, what, like six, seven thousand, something like that. Yeah, six, seven thousand. Um, whereas science shows that the that the earth is many, many, many more years old than that. Millions, um, billions, whatever. Yeah. Billion, yeah. And, and so By carbon dating. The, the question here is, like, some people will go the route and say, well, actually, science, the modern science, shows that the Bible shows that the earth really is a lot younger than what we think, and you might call them young earth creationists. I tend not to go that route mm-hmm. in how I think about this. Um, for me, I think that there's just other ways we can think about the age of the earth according to the Bible. Yeah. Um, so, for instance, you have the young earth. There's also others who would take an old earth approach, which is to say that the, the stuff which sounds like the Bible is young is actually, um, <laughs> sorry, the stuff which makes so the stuff in the Bible which makes it sound like the earth is young actually is not as clear as we think. Yeah. Um, we, we see the six days of creation in Genesis 1. The word day could also possibly mean era or just a long period of time. Yep. Yom. Other people would. Yom in the Hebrew. Yeah. Other people would propose a gap theory where after God created the earth, there was this big long span of time that passed. Billions then, of years. Yeah. And then the six days took place. Mm-hmm. I, I also uh, have thought quite a bit about the kind of uh, theory which, which, uh, which says that God made an old earth. I don't, think, I don't see any reason why we would need to 
Mm -hmm. We'll just shy away from that. Which is saying he instantaneously created an earth that's billions of years of age, right? Exactly. Where everything, the, the tree automatically is 150 years of age and has the rings inside of it. Yeah, and that could be the case. And, and one of the ways that I like to think about this is how old was Adam when God made him? The Nobody first knows. I mean, does yeah. anyone know? But I, I mean, if you if you had the know. intelligent capacity to name the animals and could uh -huh. walk in the garden with, with God and had a relationship with God, most likely was a an adolescent of some kind or a young adult or even adult, right? Yeah. Those age, to have what, that kind of relationship. However old he was, it certainly wasn't an infant. No. <laughs> no. Um, God made a mature Adam, yeah. an Adam who would at least be old enough to, to be able to handle himself, to be autonomous and so forth. And in the same kind of way, it could be that God made an old earth, an earth that had already gone through the process of maturing um, so that it would be inhabitable by human beings. So I, I just, I don't see why we would necessarily need to get into a big conflict with the Bible and the age of the earth and science and all that. Um, another big area of, of, uh, contention is what the Bible has to say about evolution. And that's another can of worms. I, I myself am not a biologist, and so I have to be very careful treading here. Um, but similar to how there's different explanations with the age of the earth, some people will go the route and show that um, the story in Genesis is a little more figurative than literal, and so this allows room for uh, people to believe in the evolutionary process, and then at one point in that process, God sort of established a human being, places image on him. That was Adam, and so forth. So you have so people you're talking going, about theistic evolution there. Yeah. So you have people going that direction. Um, frankly, I, again, I'm not a, a really strong on the uh, on the science side of things, but the way I see it, it seems like just about any evidence for a common ancestor could also be evidence for a common creator, um, and so. Evolution, as a theory, uh, exists because it's trying to explain how life came about. If that explanation is just as well explained with a creator God, then I don't see that evolution has as much weightiness to it as the scientific community often tends to make it seem. Uh, it's, it, it is meant to answer a question, and if that question is already found in God, then I'd just be hesitant to, to, to say, well, then it must be true and God must be wrong. There's a professor from Oxford University who teaches advanced mathematics named John Lennox. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. sure you know him oh, yeah. if you work in apologetics because he's a Christian. He's a believer. And he would often say, or he said one thing. He was speaking at the Oxford Union, which is a debating society in London at Oxford University or in Cambridge. Mm -hmm. And he said agency and mechanism don't compete. I thought that was so fascinating. And what that means is, say, for example, you're driving down the road and you see a house. You see a, a beautiful home that Andrew probably sold. Boom. Right. <laughs> Andrew works in real estate. So you see a beautiful house in, in Highland Park. When you drive by that house, you assume there was an architect and there was an engineer that put that house together. You had an architect who drew out the blueprints and came up with this grand design of this house. Mm -hmm. Then you had an engineer who came in and a, and a contractor who made it work, who put it together, who put the sewage pipes in the right place to make this house work and who created the foundation, built the framing, put it all together, right? Design and mechanism don't have to compete with each other. In fact, logically, you would assume that they both work together. And what I mean by that is, you know, when, when you look at an ordered universe, an ordered world where the sun comes up and down every day and the, the time and the seasons change at the same time every year, it's so predictable that you can grow crops, right? You, you look at an ordered universe, I have no problem saying that there was an intelligent designer behind that ordered universe while at the same time using physics to understand how God did what he did. Like, for example, mm -hmm. when I hear the Big Bang Theory, that's often used as a silver bullet against creationism, you know, because they can say we have mathematical evidence that the earth or that the universe was formed at a single moment. 
therefore you don't need God. There wasn't a magic guy with a beard in the sky who created the universe. Mm. Then you hear that and you're like, well, hold on, wait a second. The, The Big Bang Theory says that all of the matter that has ever existed and will ever exist was created within a massive explosion within a trillionth of a trillionth of a second. That's exactly what I would expect to happen if God said, like he said in Genesis 1, 3, let there be light and there was light. It's exactly what I would expect to happen. And so I have no problem believing in both Genesis 1, 3 and the Big Bang Theory because Genesis 1, 3 tells me what happened, that God created the universe and said, let there be light. The Big Bang Theory tells me mathematically how God spoke that into existence. Yeah, yeah, good. I, there, there are some Christians who feel like the Big Bang Theory uh, goes against Christianity, but like what you're saying, I don't think that's necessarily true. In fact, I often use a Big Bang Theory to in, in yeah. my own work as an apologist because, my goodness, I mean, I, I heard it said this way, that if you're lying awake at 3 in the morning and you hear a little bang, aren't you going to wonder where that little bang came from? Yeah. And you also have the uh, the argument of, of the, the complexity of the universe, right, where we talk about how the universe appears to be fine-tuned to support life in that there, it's as if there's all these dials um, about different constants in the universe, like the universe expansion rate or the ratio of fundamental forces of nature and so forth. And all these things are set in such a spot where if they were off just a little, little bit, then the universe would not be able to inhabit life. Now, how does that relate to the Big Bang? I mean, if you have one massive explosion, that doesn't guarantee that everything is going to settle in such a way to make life possible. And yet here we are. So I think that the Big Bang actually does a lot of work for apologetics and helping to show that that there is good reason to believe God exists. Yeah, the empirical evidence that we can see in creation right now really points towards creator. Right. Um, and so I think you have to look at these individuals who are really just holding to a philosophy, a materialistic philosophy that is apart from God. And they're holding on to that and running away from what science actually says. Right. Because as you mentioned, I, I wrote down a couple, but looking at like the molecular bonding, formation of atoms, um, gravitation, electromagnetism, just mm-hmm. to name a couple, as you said, the expansion rate of the universe, the cosmos, all of these have to be very finely tuned. We're talking like one times 10 to the negative 38th for the charge of electron and protons. Like it's so microscopically fine-tuned to point towards a creator or to, for human beings to survive at all yeah. um, inside of it, which is just absolutely crazy. Um, yeah, the astrophysicist Hugh Ross, um, he calculated the chances of life being possible on just one planet in our universe. And he said it would be a 1 in 10 raised to the 138th power. Oh, my gosh. Um, so we're talking 138 zeros. Now, that is... That's a lot. Yeah, and that's probably the most conservative estimate I've ever heard. Um, there, um, there's probably more conservative people who, who think it, but however you understand it, it is incredibly unlikely. I mean, not even like winning a lottery. This isn't a one in a million chance. That's one in 10 followed by six zeros. We're talking 138 zeros. The universe, yeah. the universe is so ordered that we can launch a, a I don't know, we can la- I don't know what the term would be, but we can launch a, a satellite or spaceship whatever to go from cape canaveral florida land it on a specific crater in mars hole in one first shot and because our understanding of gravity is so complex or is so developed and gravity is so predictable that scientists in houston can land an object on a crater in mars in one shot yeah Mm -hmm. it's it's pretty cool and that is we think about kind of the if we talk about evolution a little bit there and the evolution of the human brain or the evolution of the eye or the evolution of these thinking or whatnot, like that wouldn't happen in evolution um, because these are complex biological systems where you just have 
one one thing evolves really quickly, right? And that has no mm-hmm. purpose, right? You think about maybe an eye socket forming in a blob. All right, what's the eye socket there for, right? It's going to disevolve because it brings no benefit to them, right? Or even like blood clotting in that sense, right? They, if you evolve a partial blood clot, but there's no, you know, or blood coming in the way, all these complex systems take, you know, thousands and millions of mutations to develop that would have no function until that's completely done. Yeah, but, there are some, quite a few different areas. It's just hard to imagine evolution would uh give a proper answer for it yeah um and i understand that there's you know small changes and animals die out and and it's you know time and matter and chance but there's just not enough time um and i think that's one of the big issues that i don't feel people are talking about as much as they ought to be yeah Uh, so again i'm not a i'm not a biologist i'm not a scientist so i'm always hesitant to get into this but from what i have seen um it does seem very it, it, it sounds like evolution sure has a lot of issues in fact there is an article uh, by Richard Lewontin, who is a renowned geneticist and evolutionary biologist. And he was commenting on the challenges that they face as scientists who believe in evolution. Um, and it was kind of a rare thing because normally they don't, yeah. they're not honest with the problems they have. And so I really appreciated that with Lewontin. But he, he said something that was quite astounding. He said, we accept these absurdities. Like he, he, he even used the word absurdity. He's like, yes, there are some absurd things that we believe as evolutionists, but we accept these absurdities for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Mm. To quote him, that's what he said, um, which really just shows like there is a bias here. There's a pre-established notion of how this world ought to work, which is governing how they think through these questions. Yeah. I mean, if there is no God, then evolution is the best you got. I wouldn't blame him for believing it. Yeah. Um, but if there is a God, then if he's close to the idea, he's never going to find it. I mean, what if these notions that science must exclude God is a notion which has doomed our chances of ever finding the right answers? The um, uh, uh, David Berlinsky, who is a <laughs> secular Jew, he, he was, are you, are you familiar with I, this? I think, yeah, I think I know what you're talking Yeah, he, he commented on Richard Lewontin's article there, and he said, if one is obliged to accept absurdities for fear of a divine foot, imagine what prodigies of effort would be required if the rest of the divine torso was found wedged at the door, <laughs> demanding to be let in. It, it, just, it just goes to show, like, hey, yeah. like, what are the pre-established beliefs you have here, yep. and how is it affecting your ability to think critically about the issues at hand? Yeah, it's I, I really hard not to be biased. Well, I can kind of understand where that, si- where, where that community is because no one wants to be the first person in the room to say, hey, guys, um, the magical sky fairy that we've been making fun of for 250 years, I think we need to give a little more, more thought to that mm-hmm. um, because they seem that seems to make a lot more sense as we come to understand the universe. No one wants to be the first person to raise their hand mm. and say that. And so mm. I understand where that that stubbornness comes from. Yeah, totally, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's not cool being a scientist who <laughs> believes in the existence of God. There are many, but they tend to be a little more uh, clandestine or, or kind of secretive with uh, their beliefs and so forth. I um, I just kind of circle back to Ro about the, um, the enlightenment period that you talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, it also, bears into why we are where we are today. Because long before the Enlightenment, we more or less needed to believe God existed. Mm -hmm. Stuff happened, we didn't know why or what explained it, lightning and earthquakes and so forth, and people thought, oh, this must be God, you know. Um, Then, as as other things happened, like the Enlightenment and Darwinism and the scientific revolution and all this, we started to realize that there actually are natural explanations for some of the things that we thought was God. 
when this trend was taking place, people figured, oh, eventually science is going to catch up to God and pass him, and all the answers that we were originally giving to God actually can be explained by science. Mm-hmm. Now, what happened since then, I think, has been some of these other discoveries, like the challenges with evolution and the challenges with the fine-tuning of the universe and even the Big Bang showing that the universe has a beginning and so forth. Uh, what it shows is that it... it, it that the direction science was going is not going in that same kind of way. And folks who think that science is slowly and steadily answering all of the questions about the origin and existence of the universe and everything, I think they're kind of stuck in the 70s a little bit, (laughs) not realizing how much has actually changed in scientific developments. And now we're just sort of caught in this system, thinking that Mm. science works this kind of way. That was not always the case. What year was the famous Time Magazine article where they said, is God dead? I'm not familiar with I'm, that. I'm not sure either. I know what you're talking about. But I think it, was, it was late 60s, early 70s, but time, they came out with a, an article that said, is God dead? It was on the cover. Hmm. And the idea was exactly what you were talking about. Is, is As science progressed, we have less and less of a need to, to basically the God of the gaps argument. There are yeah. fewer gaps that we can only explain with God. Therefore, eventually we're going to run out of gaps and we're going to have no more need for God. And hmm. I, it, yeah. 1966. Yeah. I just there Googled go. it real quick. Yeah. 1966. Yeah, that good. As you said, the 70s and whatnot, but now how much has scientific knowledge advanced since the 50s? Like, just exponentially, you think about the internet and phones and just all that we can do, and yet we still have no evidence that points away from creator, right? Yeah. I mean... When you think about it, really. There's there's stuff. I mean, there's there's ways you can talk about this, like the problem of evil and so forth. Yeah. Um, But I don't think there's any conclusive evidence by any means. That's a good way to put it. I am... yeah, and I, it, it almost seems as if the, the God of the gaps has changed sides. You know, now, now there's just a lot of questions and challenges with a completely atheistic worldview that I think a lot of people are just not buying. Even when you think about the statistics of atheists, it, it hasn't been increasing. I mean, they, they, atheism was a lot bigger back in the 70s and so forth, but now there's a lot of more New Age spirituality and things of that nature where people do believe in some sort of God. They just don't think it's the Christian view of God. Yeah, and you know, we'll, we'll kind of wrap up here in a minute, but I think that one thing that, that often gets mistaken is that Christians always bear the burden of proof in these types of discussions mm-hmm. because mm. you know it's often expected of us that, oh, you have to prove the existence of God. And I think that's flipped. I think that's backwards. I think that, um, I think that the, the atheist should bear the burden of proof because... The atheist is taking, in my opinion, a bigger leap of faith than we are. I think when you see something that's orderly, you assume that there was something that, that made it so. Um, mm-hmm. So when you see an orderly universe, the logical explanation is that there was someone who created the orderly universe. I think the illogical explanation of the leap of faith is when you say that an orderly universe created itself out of nothing. So therefore, I think that in, in these conversations, you know, whether it be with your friend who, who's maybe having doubts or with your friend who's an out-and-out atheist— challenge them and say, hey, you know, you've asked me a lot of questions and you've asked me to prove the existence of God. Why don't you prove that there isn't a God? Like, let's shift the burden and see mm-hmm. if that worldview holds up. And I, it, it won't because you, you can't prove that there is no God. Yeah, either viewpoint takes faith of some kind, yes. right? So you mm-hmm. say, I don't have any faith. This is just evidence. And you're like, actually, it does take a faith of some kind, whether you're atheist or you have theist, you believe in God. But Matt, what are some books you might recommend to the audience who want to dive more into this? Um, well, Ro, like you mentioned, John Lennox, I think he's done some great work on that area. He has a book called um, uh, Gunning for God and uh, Has Science Buried God, where he talks about the challenges that atheism faces in this. And um, there's, a, there's, of course, other books that talk about the existence of God as well. 
Um, William Dembski is a big name as far as the evolution side of things goes. Okay. Um, Sean McDowell did a book with him on evolution. I don't remember what it's called, but I've read it, and it's a pretty good book. <laughs> um, probably not too hard to find if you know those two authors and the topic. But So there's, there's books like that. And I also think for people who are interested specifically in Christianity, um, there's questions like... Um, uh, like, can we believe the resurrection is true? And uh, Gary Habermas and Michael Lacona have a book on that. Mm. Um, and if the resurrection is true, then of course that implies the existence of God as well. And so you might come at it from that angle too. Um, we talked a little bit about the problem of suffering and pain. Mm-hmm. Um, C.S. Lewis has written on that. Mm. He has um, the problem of pain and he has a grief observed where yeah. he himself walked through that. And so you have, you have conversations there. Timothy Keller also has a book on uh, God and suffering. Um, he also he has a book in general called the, I think it's called The Reason for God, where he talks somewhat about suffering as well as a lot of other things for the existence of God and for Christianity. There's a lot of great resources. And, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention any, any of the Josh McDowell resources. Uh, <laughs> More Than a Carpenter, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Oh, that was, I've, I read that book. Oh, yeah? That shaped my faith earlier. Oh, nice. When I was, yeah. Before I was a Christian. We, uh, we came out with a new edition of that book, I think 2017. So now it has a black cover instead of the standard gold cover that a lot of people are familiar with. I um, actually, so when I, when I wrote my first book, I cited that several times. Oh, did you? Yeah. I helped with, I mentioned that because I helped with chapter three when I was doing some Ooh, research. Oh, come on. Josh was helping, uh, or Josh was working a lot on that chapter, and he kind of brought me in to help him do some of the research on manuscripts and so forth. It was fun. So I have my little mark on history in that book, which is kind of a cool little uh, street cred, I guess. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Yeah. That's sweet. Yeah. I always love that, you know, A Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Oh, yeah. He's always, the, you know, the go-to for me. I'd recommend it to a buddy a couple weeks ago, and he was like, wow, I never knew the Christian faith had such evidence behind it. I was just, you know, thought of faith. But he's like, now I think about all these, these things that can actually tangibly evidence for it. Totally, totally. And on that point, I think it is worth mentioning real quickly what faith means for the Christian. Yeah. Because you have this notion that faith is just blindly accepting something to be true Mm. um, without any evidence. And you actually, you can look up definitions of faith. You might find that as a definition. Mm -hmm. But that is not the definition that Christianity thinks of when we discuss faith. Um, In Hebrews, you know, faith is a conviction of things, hope for the the certainty of things not seen. When you research the, uh, the, the word for conviction, it's talking about a confident belief in something that checks out as far as evidence is concerned. And so it's it's not so much, it's not at all just believing blindly something without any evidence. It's it's the trusting in something after you have found it to be true. Um, in fact, all the examples of Hebrews talk about people who they believed in God, they knew that to be true, and they trusted him, they walked in obedience, um, and that was faith for them. Mm-hmm. So it's just, a, it's, it's a different type of category for how we understand faith in Christianity. Yeah. It's a response to the evidence, not a re- rejection of it. Mm. Thank you for that clarification. I think that is a good final note for the audience today. Mm-hmm. Ro, anything else to add? No, thanks, Matt, for coming on. This was, this was a lot of fun. Obviously, you made a lot of great points. Um, you're welcome back anytime. This is, <laughs> I, I'm sure our audience is going to love this one. Thanks, man. So. We'll just walk in next week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> same time, same place. Matt's here, right? <laughs> well, guys, thank you for listening today, uh, and we will catch you next time. Yeah. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode. We hope you were encouraged and inspired to turn to the only one who can and will satisfy you. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear them out. Feel free to reach us on any social media platform at Shine and Delight. You can also shoot us an email at shineanddelight at outlook.com. Until next time, be kind, love all, 
share your shine.